Welcome to the Alatia Foundation's new podcast series where experts share their insights on current and urgent energy matters for the benefit of our members and the general community. My name's Nawid Jabarkil and I'm joined today by Dr. Marcello Contestabile, Principal Economist at the Qatar Environment and Energy Research Institute. Dr. Marcello's research interests revolve around understanding future technology transition pathways in fuel-efficient transport, particularly low-emission passenger cars, in order to inform policies that are both effective and efficient. Before we start this session, I'd like to remind all of our listeners to please visit the Foundation's website at www.abhafoundation.org and follow the Foundation on Twitter at alatiafn. DN. So what are we talking about today? Well, the energy transition to net zero carbon emissions is gradually taking shape. The final fuel mix will be diverse with many different local solutions probably in place all around the world. Today, we'll look a little closer to home and where economic research is leading towards local solutions for Qatar by discussing the topic with one of the leading experts from the Institute. Good afternoon, Marcello, and welcome once again to an Alatia Foundation activity. Good afternoon to you and everyone, and thanks a lot for having me today. So before we go ahead, Marcello, for our listeners and some overseas listeners, uh, let's start with a brief description of the Institute. Where does it sit within the wider Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar? Yes, so Kiri is the uh, Qatar Environment and Energy Research Institute which is uh, the leading multidisciplinary research institute in Qatar in the areas of energy, water and the environment. As you said, it is part of Hamad bin Khalifa University, which is member of Qatar Foundation. And uh, at the Institute, through our scientific, technological, economics and policy research, we seek to provide solutions to the climate change and sustainability challenges that Qatar and other arid region uh, face today. And Marcello, over recent years, some of your studies have concentrated on the electrification of Qatar's transport systems. I mean, we look at the metro, for example, as one uh, big large scale example of, uh, of electrification. But what about private cars and individuals and their behaviour? Uh, the majority of car owners still love private cars, private transportation, and particularly those gas guzzlers, the 4x4s and, and SUVs. Can we change that? Yes, uh, absolutely. Very important uh, point. Um, so uh, changing the way people travel around Qatar in terms of modes of transport is not going to be uh, easy. Uh, public transport provision is important, but, but we need to address uh, emissions from passenger cars as well, because they will remain an important share of transport. And electrification is one way of doing that. It's an important way that Qatar is strategically planning to pursue, but it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be quick, because uh, as you were correctly saying, in Qatar, uh, we love our cars, we love our SUVs, and the problem is that uh, fuel taxation is, is non-existent. There is no taxation on vehicles to reflect their emissions, and, and there are no standards to force the fuel economy of the vehicles to improve. So effectively, there are no drivers to, uh, towards uh, very low emissions and very high efficiency. That's what uh, electrification gives you. So we can get there eventually, but, but the, the, the policy framework around passenger cars needs to change. And at the same time, uh, uh, adopters, users of passenger cars uh, have a very important role to play 
because they are the ones who will eventually buy them. So they need to become familiar with the technology. They need to develop a positive perception of it. And that will take time and will take commitment from the government. But starting from public transport is the, is the right way to go. So not just a metro system, but also buses. So if people see electric buses around town and they start using them, that will make them more familiar with the technology and it will help, help eventually. And just looking at individual users, uh, are there, is there resistance to moving towards electric cars um, or, or, is it, or is it simply just a fact of economics? If they see that this is going to save them money in the, in the long term, it's something that they will be willing to do. Yes, uh, this, is, this is another uh, key, uh, key um, if you like, element to look at. When you look at uh, passenger car buyers, they are very heterogeneous. So there might be uh, a small group of them who is prepared to pay a premium to buy a vehicle that is more environmentally friendly, uh, and we call them innovators or early adopters. But to really make inroads, uh, you need to convince the mainstream users to buy uh, electric vehicles. And the mainstream users are really not necessarily all that motivated by, by environmental considerations, or at the very least, they're not prepared to pay a premium. So you have to make the vehicle not just effectively economically attractive, but you also have to ensure the, uh, the adopters that the vehicle will provide similar functionality that is reliable and, and that is durable. And, uh, and with today's electric cars, uh, especially in this part of the world, that's still some way away. And in terms of the, you mentioned the government's role, uh, are subsidies the, the right way to go? Do you think you've seen in Europe, for example, a lot of governments try and subsidise electric vehicles? Is that what you think is the best, the best option? Yes, uh, subsidies uh, or grants are, are key, are essential, but they need to be part of a broader uh, set of policies. So subsidies fall in the so-called um, demand side policy because they reduce the cost, the price differential between a conventional vehicle and an electric vehicle. So it will make it more attractive for, for, a, for a potential adopter to buy the car. You also need to deploy charging infrastructure and you need other taxation more generally to uh, reflect the cost of emissions from conventional vehicles. So it's not just grants to electric cars, but it's also making the other vehicles more expensive. And lastly, but, but, but not, not, not less importantly, you have to look at the supply side. So you have to uh, effectively uh, push the car manufacturers to produce uh, vehicles that are more fuel efficient. So in Europe, a big part of the drive to electrification is in fact fuel economy standards. They are becoming so stringent that uh, car manufacturers are more and more forced to introduce at least partly electrified vehicles to meet the targets. And in Qatar yeah. right now, we have none of all these. Yeah, yeah, but certainly areas that can be that can be developed, I think, and, and countries across the region um, clearly looking at them. But it's not just cars. Uh, once we step into offices and homes, for example, lots of other areas that can possibly be tackled as well. Batteries are one of them. Uh, most standard batteries, the lead acid ones that we know, have a really notoriously short life with taking them out of remotes or other things, particularly in hot, humid, saline atmosphere that we've got in parts of the Middle East, like in Qatar. Will lithium-ion batteries have a longer life, do you think? Is that another area that needs to be explored? Uh, yes, uh, lithium-ion batteries, uh, be they for vehicles or, or stationary power storage, 
they can be made to last longer, for sure. And uh, it's, it's about the chemistry, uh, picking the right chemistry. There is more room for maneuver in when it comes to stationary applications. When it comes to passenger cars in particular, you need very high energy density. So uh, you are a bit more constrained. And very, very important is also the, the thermal management of the battery. That means uh, cooling it. So batteries here, especially in vehicles, will most likely require active cooling. That means liquid cooling. But, but generally speaking, the answer to your question is yes, lithium-ion batteries will not suffer as much as, as lead-acid batteries and can potentially be adapted to, to these climates as well. And I know a lot of our listeners are interested in uh, industrial use in particular, looking at heavy industries. Let's look at heavy transport buses and trucks then. The construction sector, for example, hugely important in Qatar, but industrial use as well, things like oil and gas. Well, we need something different to the standard lithium-ion battery cells currently used. And does this bring us to the subject of maybe something we've spoken about before at the foundation, hydrogen fuel cells? Okay, um, so something different from, from lithium-ion batteries. First of all, uh, let me just uh, just add that the lithium-ion battery technology is like really a family of chemistries, and they can be made to meet different uh, the needs of different applications. There are trade-offs, so uh, you cannot have everything at the same time, but uh, for specific applications, you can always choose the right kind of battery. This said, uh, when you look at batteries and hydrogen fuel cells, they are rather different technologies. So where, uh, if you like, batteries naturally fall short, that's where uh, there can be an opportunity for hydrogen and fuel cells. When talking about fuel cells in particular for vehicles, uh, where they make most sense is, uh, is long-haul heavy-duty vehicles, because to store enough energy uh, in batteries would mean a huge, uh, hugely sized battery that costs a lot and reduces the payload of the vehicle. So that's where hydrogen fuel cells can really be a good bet. So long haul trucks, for example, this is one area where, for example, in Europe, uh, industry and, and governments are looking at. But again, the conditions here in the Gulf are very different. You look at long haul trucks in the Gulf and they tend to be uh, older vehicles most likely second-hand vehicles that come from, from the, the European market. And, and so there is no currently no incentive to modernize the fleet, even you know, before you start considering uh, new technologies altogether, because fuel price is low and there are no standards. But again, lots of, lots of scope potentially for, for future uh, use of hydrogen fuel cells in trucks. Yeah, and again, it's it's interesting because you you rightly say that you it's something that we see quite a lot of, not just in Qatar. That's the the importance of uh, of things like this. These solutions really are transferable to to other countries uh, across the region. You mentioned opportunity there that it could be a potential opportunity. I mean, we put on our our chemistry hats. I'm going to talk about hydrogen as a transportation or even a generation fuel. Well, will Qatar be able to produce sufficient what's known as green hydrogen or, or blue hydrogen, do you think? Okay, certainly blue hydrogen uh, uh, for Qatar is, is the obvious one. There is massive potential for blue hydrogen and the constraint there might be mainly the availability of uh, carbon capture and storage uh, sites. Not that they are not available, but, uh, but it's something that one needs to 
to consider carefully. So lots of potential for blue hydrogen. Green hydrogen, on the other hand, in Qatar in particular, is more limited simply because you have one renewable source of power, which is solar. And if you want to go towards solar uh, in, in Qatar uh, and try and, and, and meet the needs of uh, like the power sector first, um, then, you know, that's, that's the obvious uh, first use of, of, uh, of power, of renewable power, because it's more efficient to use it directly where electricity is needed than to turn it into hydrogen and, and use it for something else. If you really uh, develop solar to a scale where you are meeting uh, pretty much all the, the needs of, of uh, the you know, power demand in Qatar, need, uh, demand for electricity, first of all, you're already looking at uh, deploying such a large amount of solar that will take a big chunk of, of, of Qatar's land. Uh, my colleagues at Kiri have estimated that if you want to deploy enough solar PV to meet peak power demand in Qatar in the summer, you're going to need to use around 15% uh, of Qatar's land, which might not sound like much, but considering that there's lots of other uses for land, and not all sites, by the way, enjoy the same level of irradiation, then you can see that, uh, that there isn't an awful lot left. For, for green hydrogen. Surely, if you get to that sort of level of, of PV penetration, you will have times during the year where you have excess PV power, which you can then turn into hydrogen and you can possibly use that for transport. But, but as I said, the green hydrogen potential in Qatar, unlike, for example, Saudi Arabia, which is a very different country in terms of size, um, uh, is, is, is quite limited. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting fact. Fifteen percent. I wouldn't have thought uh, that it would be as uh, as high as that. But the, the the hydrogen space and the conversation around hydrogen is something that's really um, growing in the region. I sense. Just for our listeners, we do have some of our previous podcasts have looked specifically at hydrogen issues around green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and and, and the difference among them. So please do have a look at some of our our previous ones if you're specifically interested in the in the area but some fossil fuel countries fossil fuel rich countries at least talking of using hydrogen now as the next fuel export uh, Marcello perhaps converting methane to ammonia for example the conversation so long in the region has been oil and gas I mean could hydrogen be the next LNG do you think for Qatar? Right uh, so I would say probably not the next LNG but certainly an important part of where Qatar is headed and it's not just Qatar. Uh, Saudi Arabia, in different ways, is headed in the same direction. And uh, the, the recent announcement of both Saudi and Qatar joining the, the Net Zero uh, Producers Forum certainly suggests that uh, Qatar will be, will be developing its hydrogen sector to an extent or to a significant extent. And just to give this a little bit more context, uh, this announcement, announcement is, the, if you like, the natural evolution of a certain direction in which these countries are going, where they have realized that they need to do, first of all, uh, a country like Saudi in particular has woken up to climate change and finally decided to just not uh, like sweep it under the carpet and do something about, about it. Uh, Qatar was already playing a role uh, through its LNG exports, being LNG being 
if you like, or natural gas being the, the least carbon intensive fossil fuel and helping in the, the energy transition. But uh, it is quite clear that in a net zero world, that's, that's not enough. And, and the concept that has been developed in Saudi and that, and that now Qatar is also embracing is that of, uh, of like the circular carbon economy where hydrogen plays a part. So hydrogen will not be the next LNG for Qatar, but it's going to be an important element of uh, reducing, uh, gradually reducing the carbon content of its export, which will not be just LNG, which are not only LNG. Uh, Qatar exports fertilizers, it exports steel, and, and hydrogen allows reducing, I mean, blue hydrogen or green hydrogen allow reducing the carbon content of all its exports. So it becomes a broader and more diversified picture than just LNG. Yeah, and it's uh, such an interesting time to be looking at the the considerations for governments in the region with these net zero targets, not just in the region, all across the world. It's no longer just the economic, uh, the economics that matter, but so many other things that, that drive decisions now around around energy use. I mean, we could talk about this for, for much longer, but I think our time's up for today. Marcello, thank you so much for coming on uh, to the podcast, for sharing your views with us on what fuels to look out for in the future and also what people in Qatar and across the region can be doing to change behaviour as well. For the listeners, thank you very much. Please watch this space for the next Dalatia podcast in the series. I'm Nawid Jabakil. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>